0: This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists.
1: I'm your co-host Pranav Rajporkar.
0: And I'm Adriel Saporta.
1: And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. One aspect of health we haven't covered yet is the electronic health record. I think it'll be fun to do a little bit of a deep dive into what electronic health records, also known as EHRs are, their history, and current challenges before we dive into what's going to be our first of many conversations on how AI technologies are suited to tackle these challenges.
0: All right, let's do it. So EHR stands for electronic health record, and it's what it sounds like. It's an electronic version of your health record. And maybe some of the general Zers among us are thinking, well, of course my health records are electronic. But every time I call up my pediatrician to figure out, for example, which vaccines I got as a kid, it takes her a few days to get my paper charts out of a physical storage unit somewhere in New York City.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. So an EHR will contain all the medical information you'd expect a patient to have, medical history, diagnoses medications, immunizations, test results, even radiology images.
0: Right, and even though the image of your family doctor with a clipboard may seem quaint, there are a lot of downsides to having paper medical records. Probably the most important one being that if you're someone with a serious illness who needs to see several different doctors and specialists, you don't want to have to call up the basement records department of every hospital you've been to and wait for them to photocopy doctor's notes and any x-rays that you've had so that you can physically mail them to another provider.
1: If providers don't have the full picture of what's going on with a the patient, there could be delays in treatment or they could unnecessarily duplicate expensive medical tests. Right. I'm assuming that electronic health records can also help increase providers' revenues by streamlining billing. Oh, absolutely. But the more generous take on EHRs is that by allowing patients and physicians to much more easily share patient data, EHRs are enabling coordinated care.
0: In theory, yes. Which is why, back in 2009, President Obama gave $30 billion to hospitals and medical providers to digitize their health records. He passed what's called the high Tech Act. And HITECH stands for Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health. At the time, only 17% of doctors stored information digitally. Wow. The high Tech Act encouraged providers to adopt EHR systems by creating financial incentives for them to do so. And any providers who had not adopted EHR technologies after 2015 were penalized with reductions to their Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements.
1: So was high Tech successful?
0: In many ways, yes. The percentage of U.S. hospitals using digital records went from 9.4% to 75% between 2008 and 2014. But you could say that it failed in one critical way, which is that it didn't prioritize interoperability, which is the ability to transfer medical records from one provider to another.
1: Which was one of the core motives of digitizing medical records in the first place.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so maybe I'll just give us a little bit of a lay of the land when it comes to the EHR sector. So the EHR market was a $30 billion market in 2020, and over half of that market is controlled by two major players, Epic and Cerner.
1: And uh, Epic is a household name when it comes to medical records.
0: Yeah, Epic is the real Goliath when it comes to EHRs. In 2018, the company had $2.9 billion in revenue, and the company is actually still privately owned. The company's CEO and founder, Judy Faulkner, still owns a sizable portion of the company. And... I want to pause our EHR story for a second here, because I think it's important to highlight stories of successful businesswomen, and Judy Faulkner is just about as successful as it gets. As a graduate student in computer science at the University of Wisconsin, she created a prototype for Epic while sitting in her living room one day in the mid-1970s. She is now number two on the Forbes 2020 list of self-made women, and her estimated net worth is $5.5 billion dollars. She's still the CEO of Epic, and the company has never raised venture capital or made an acquisition and develops all of its software in-house. She also signed the Giving Pledge in 2015 and has agreed to eventually give away 99% of her stake in Epic. So while we should definitely get into some of the very understandable issues that people have with Epic, you still have to appreciate a founding story like that.
1: Definitely. That's inspiring. Okay. So what are the issues that people have with Epic?
0: Well, I should say that it's like a thing that no one likes their EHR. Almost everyone wishes that their EHR did this or that thing better. But I think doctors tend to complain that Epic is overly complicated, that it's almost too customizable. As one doctor once put it to me, Epic is a Lamborghini, but most of us are driving it in first gear.
1: (laughs) One of the hopes with EHR is for patients to spend less time on their computers and more time with the patient. Physicians spent an average of about 16 minutes per encounter when using EHRs. A 2018 survey found that 7 out of 10 physicians agree that EHRs greatly contribute to physician burnout.
0: Oy, yeah. And I'd say that maybe a bigger problem that some people have had with EHRs has to do with what we were talking about earlier, which is this lack of interoperability. So many people have complained that these EHR systems are making it difficult to actually share medical records between different hospital systems. At one point in time, Epic was charging hospitals a fee for every patient who wanted to access information outside of its software. And then the ONC, or the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, submitted a report to the Senate in 2015 with concerns that, along with those fees that they were charging, EHR companies were engaging in, quote, Information blocking to control referrals and enhance their market dominance.
1: In the 2018 survey that I mentioned earlier, seven out of 10 physicians thought that solving interoperability deficiencies should be the top priority for EHRs in the next decade. And I imagine that one of the challenges here, if you're a digital health company that's developed predictive analytics to support disease diagnosis or prevention, but you're not able to integrate with whatever EHR that the provider happens to use, it might be hard to convince doctors to use a second system just for that use case.
0: Totally. Think of all the cool and useful AI-based third-party applications that could be built on top of these EHR systems.
1: So if hospitals are frustrated with Epic's lack of interoperability, why can't they just hop to another EHR?
0: <laughs> so. Duke University reportedly spent $700 million on its Epic implementation. Mayo Clinic spent $1.5 billion to implement Epic in all of its locations. Getting set up with a new EHR is expensive, and if you've already sunk millions of dollars into an EHR, chances are you're not getting off of it anytime soon. But now people are pointing out that with new AI technologies like wearables, at-home diagnostics, and virtual care clinics, that patient data is now being generated outside of EHRs. So even if digital health companies are able to pull data in from legacy EHRs, the new data that they're generating isn't being sent back to those EHR systems. And so incumbents like Epic and Cerner are probably a little worried about this.
1: I think that's a great point. Today, we'll talk with Ian Shaquille, founder of Agmedics. Agmedics converts natural clinician-patient conversation into medical documentation so that clinicians can focus on patient care. And I'm excited to hear how the solution fits into solving some of the problems we just chatted about with EHRs today.
0: Okay, so Ian, you did an undergrad in bioengineering and then went to business school. Can you maybe take us through the the brief founding story of Augmedics? When was the... Aha moment. Was everyone around you starting a company? I we we both went to the GSB, so we know how that that peer pressure can feel.
2: So the Augmetics founding story is very much Silicon Valley magic. So I graduated from Stanford from the GSB in 2012 and I started working in startups myself. And oddly enough, on a sunny summer day, um, I was hanging out in Dolores Park. I was with friends, and some of those friends happened to be working at Google, and some of those folks happened to be at Google X. And one of those folks in their backpack had a prototype hardware device that they were not supposed to have in the wild. And they told me it's called Google Glass. They told me I could try it on, play around with it, but was forbidden from ever taking a picture of it. Otherwise, they'll get fired. And mind you, this was at a time um, when no one in the world had really heard of Glass. So here I am being the geek that I am. I, I put on this device. I'm looking around and I didn't want to give it back. And being a healthcare person myself, the first thing that I said was, have you thought about doctors? Here's what you could do, and I started effectively verbalizing Augmetics right then and there on the spot in Dolores Park. The Googlers were all laughing at me. Uh, they were telling me, you know, we're thinking about other types of applications, dads in the park, GoPros, selfies, hiking, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I, I, I laughed at that, and I um, we got into a big debate really, and I kept contending that healthcare and enterprise was the way to go. And in the subsequent weeks, I really just became obsessed. After that, I just decided to drop everything I was doing, quit my job, and found this company, Augmedics, the first glass company of any sort, and really start this company off with a mission to rehumanize the doctor-patient interaction using technology.
0: Was that scary to start a company based on another company's product?
2: It it was. I mean, Google, I had no contact with Google other than that weird conversation in the park. It's not like they were uh, sponsors of this. If anything, they were soft anti-sponsors in the way they were really positioning Glass. It's kind of funny how Google got to be involved. In the first few months of Google's soft launch in 2013, you know, they would send these Google Glass devices to like celebrities and things like that. And the celebrities would receive these consumer Glass devices, put it on, say something, take a selfie, put that Glass away in their dresser, and you would just never see that Glass again. So one of the things we would do is we would like bind and buy these unused glass units and hoard them and then re-engineer them to be enterprise grade and be useful to Augmetics. And then somewhere along the line, Google kind of caught wind that all these devices they're sending out are sort of ending up in, in our hands.
0: How did you get in touch with those celebrities?
2: Well, I mean, they would just post on social media, hey, I just received this glass, this is cool. I'm playing around with it. This is what it looks like. And then there was really no app ecosystem at the time, so they would just put the glass away, never to be seen again. And that was our moment to get in touch with them and get that glass, right? Oh my,
0: so you would just slide
2: into their DMs? There were other social media (laughs) methods at that time, but yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, Google caught wind that so many of these unused glass devices through their geolocation and their, I don't know, communications figured out that we were taking possession of them and using them. And I think that really inspired them to start thinking about pivoting glass. And they ultimately came to um, have this initiative they called Glass at Work, which is really what it should have been, in my humble opinion, when they launched Glass. And quite honestly, even before this, when Google was ignoring us, we actually created 3D printed versions of Glass, perfect replicas. And and we would um, put them on doctors, have them go see patients. We would rig their exam rooms with audio, video equipment. We would put scribes and other people in the other parts of the building. We would kind of simulate automatics and gain metrics and doctor sat and patient sat and things way in advance of even possessing glass. So it really goes to show that you can hustle and, and find ways to prove out your ideas with very little.
1: Could you describe a little bit about how Augmedics uh, works uh, currently? What's, what's the setup of the, of the system and what's the problem it's solving?
2: So basically, Augmedics exists to alleviate this tragic pain point in the lives of doctors. This fact that doctors spend two, three hours plus per day typing, charting, clicking on the computer on the electronic health record, and not paying attention to the patient right in front or doing more productive tasks. So we solve this problem. We give doctors technology. Um, We give them either Google Glass, as I mentioned, or even more frequently now, we give them smartphones that they put on stands or sometimes on lanyards. And in any case, from these devices, we run our software and we then take the natural doctor-patient conversation that that is occurring and from that, we produce beautiful EHR notes in real time. You know, we do it better and faster than what the doctor would do on their own. They focus on the conversation on the patient, on being Sherlock Holmes. And the result of that is it saves the doctor, shockingly, two plus hours a day, makes them really happy, alleviates burnout, produces documentation that's better in every respect. It's just a, it's a massive win. And it's it's worth noting, however, that we're actually an in interactive service as well. So you can ask... What's the next patient to remind me of this or that? Or sometimes we can do smart orders and smart referrals. Sometimes we will even be in charter to nudge doctors to remember to close care gaps. You're probably wondering, how does it work? <laughs> um, so here's how. So we live stream the visit, the audio and video from the phone or the Google Class to a tech-enabled remote scribe. So this person from far away in a secure environment sees and hears what doctor sees and hears. As the conversation's unfolding, they're focusing on what's medically relevant and structuring that where it belongs in Cerner and Epic and the EHR. And mind you, this scribe is sitting in what we call a scribe cockpit, which is laden with a bunch of automation tools and natural language processing tools. They have the net effect of deburdening burdening the scribe. These modules are allowing a few clicks to expand very intelligently into a note, or in other cases, they are invoking really frontier speech recognition modules which are making software-first attempts. Then thereafter, the scribe will clean up those attempts. But mind you, you, you got to have that human in the loop. Uh, you got to have that scribe.
1: I'm curious, before in the pre-yogmatics days, what used to happen in a clinic? So, you know, you have your doctor talking to the patient. What's the documentation process?
2: Well, there's a, there, this has been a very long journey. So in the 80s, you know, there was doctors running around with dictaphones and cassettes. And then these companies came along and they started to do this sort of dictation of notes, transcription of notes, but they started to locate these transcriptionists far, far away, typically in Asia, and many doctors started using those services. And then in the early 2000s, there was a bipartisan effort, Democrats and Republicans, to really catalyze doctors to get off of paper records and analog records and really get on board and produce structured EHR medical notes as they should be. And so at that time, doctors were asked to actually use these EHRs, engage in those EHRs, type and structure their notes themselves, which is all for a great cause, but it causes calamity of doctors having to spend hours a day, typing, charting, clicking on these really clunky systems. And then over the last few years, more recently, doctors have been clamoring for other ways to help. One way they've been clamoring is hiring in-person on-site scribes. Literally a third person in the room with a doctor and patient there with the computer up, summarizing the conversation right into the EHR right before everyone's eyes. So it's a pretty inspiring solution. But there's so many problems with that model. So for one, these folks are generally high-churn, come today, gone tomorrow, not particularly trained, not tech-enabled, not enough of them. So th- there's all kinds of problems that make that model not scalable, least of which is COVID-19 and the pandemic. So in light of all that's going on in 2020, uh, many health systems are dismissing these in-person scribes and saying, well, you just have to find it another way. So I guess I've sketched out for you kind of the various augmentics, alternatives, or precursors. Ranging from in-person scribes, dictation transcription, do-it-yourself DIY, all of which have their problems.
1: It's really interesting what you've done with it in terms of the solution approach you've taken, going down this route of human in the loop and really trying to start with a system that puts humans at the center of this problem solving. So I'd love for you to chat a little bit about that. Maybe maybe starting with what humans in the loop actually means and then how you decided to go down this this path
2: yeah so we we use this term humans in the loop we also use this term ia which is a play on ai ia standing for intelligence amplification and in many ways you you know you might relate to this by thinking about companies like uber uber didn't just sort of start with uber driverless cars um they started with uber as we know it (laughs) with drivers and I think the vision is over the years and decades to come, they will migrate with intelligence, with AI, with the data to do more and more with driverless cars and automation and ultimately less and less with physical drivers. But that's a journey and a labor of love. And we think Augmatics is much the same way. There are no shortcuts in this world. You know, and, and you know, I'm well aware of the many young fast follower companies out there that look at Augmatics and proclaim to do what we do, but with pure AI or pure software, as they put it, but if you examine those solutions, and I insist that you do demand to see a demo, you will find that if they're not using humans in the loop, really that's not ambient, natural conversation scribing becoming the note. It's nothing like that, actually. What it will be is dictation transcription. You will notice the doctor is pressing a button, saying a wake word, and then word for wording entire sections of the note in a stilted way. That's quite the opposite of what we're going for, because that requires time and burden, Um, I mean, just think about it like as a layperson. I mean, I can hardly order a Domino's pizza on my Alexa (laughs) or try booking like a plane flight to Atlanta on Delta, just on your Alexa. Can you imagine anything more painful? Well, Epic is way more complicated than anything like that. And imagine not just one person speaking word for word, but a multi-party conversation with head nods and that becoming a structured note in in Epic or Cerner. I think if you think of it from, from that perspective, you'll understand why you need a human in the loop. With the current level of technology that we all have.
0: No, I love this approach. I think it makes a lot of sense to, you know, instead of kind of hammering over the head an industry that's not used to using brand new tech every other day, you're sort of taking it step by step and integrating in slow, natural ways that actually work every step of the way. I'm, like I'm sort of envisioning that cliche map for creating an MVP. You know, you start, instead of starting out with just the wheels of the car, you actually start with a skateboard, and then you move to a bike, and then you actually create the car. And it sort of feels like Augmedics is doing that really, really nicely. And so I just want to get a complete picture. So the idea is you find some way to get into the clinical setting, whether it's the Google Glass at the beginning, and now it seems like maybe you're using other technology. You have outsourced or employees or independent contractors, I'm not sure, maybe those scribes on the other end who are listening in, and creating a transcription and also hopefully maybe structuring that data in a way that's helpful for the doctor.
2: Yeah, you're hitting on a lot of the key points. Our scribes, we actually try to avoid that word transcription. It's kind of a a jargon thing, but transcription implies a word for word rendition of what was said by both parties. It's actually not what doctors want. Hmm. Um, They want what's relevant and then they want that structured. So our scribes are overseeing that process.
0: So do you have scribes that are experts for each EHR?
2: We do. So so, um, we kind of squad down and assign scribes um, to stick on specific doctors. And in the training process to become a scribe, we do specific training accordingly to EHR ecosystems as well as specialties. So currently Augmatics works in over 20 different specialties. We're particularly um, popular in primary care, which constitutes about 60% 60% of our user base. Our second runner-up is orthopedics. Our third runner-up is oncology. So you can see we work in a variety of different environments. We're also even now starting to work in hospital-based environments with emergency room doctors. So yes, our scribes do sort of top off training as part of their training to really zoom into those specialties that, they'll, that they will be assigned to. And so from the doctor's point of view and their workflow, they're just having their conversations. They're being Sherlock Holmes like they always wish they could be, and then when they turn their attention to the EHR throughout the day, all of the notes are structured and ready for them in the pending or draft status. They'll scan it over, click OK, maybe make an edit or two. Um, but that's certainly a lot less burden than doing the whole thing yourself.
1: I'd, I'd love to understand the technology here a little bit. So what kind of information does the scribe have access to? Do they have a video feed? Do they just have an audio feed? And on the doctor's end, do they have a video feed of the, of the scribe?
2: So first I'll explain the scribe experience. They, generally speaking, will have an idea of the patient schedule for that day. Um, and they will be pre-charting for those patients that are teed up for the day, which really involves like understanding um, why the patient is going to be there, looking at their past notes, just teeing up the skeleton of the note so that when it's go time and the doctor-patient conversation is unfolding, they're just filling in the blanks and being as, as efficient as they possibly could be. The scribe is typically sitting in a scribe cockpit with two screens. On the left screen, we'll call that screen one, is where they'll be creating the note. We call it the note builder. It has a lot of natural language processing expanders that are specialty specific. So they're clicking a few things, typing a few things, and the note is sort of magically unfolding and expanding beyond what any regular scribe or doctor would do, but just, typing away free text and then in this note builder on the left to the right of it they have the ability to invoke speech recognition modules which output text dialogue attempts that they will then edit Um, there are all kinds of templates all kind of doctor scribe communication tools typing typically so typically the doc if the scribe needs to communicate with the doctor they'll communicate by way of text and then that will arrive on the doctor's phone ding look at the phone here's the message or glass ding look at the glass message um, and that's kind of the way that two-way interaction works. It's typically not audio video in both directions. I guess you could say it's asymmetrical in that way. And that's kind of useful because if if the scribe was speaking, that would sort of command immediate attention and it's less glanceable. Whereas if the scribe texts, it kind of cues and is glanceable for the doctor to look at when it's the right time for the doctor to look at that in the, before, during, or after the conversation, if that makes sense.
0: I can't help but think about privacy and security. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what that process is? Is there a certain kind of clearance that these scribes need to go through? And how do you protect patient privacy here?
2: Yeah, so there there are a variety of ways that we've thought through this. And, you you know, when I first founded Augmentics, I was really concerned that maybe patients would not be accepting of the use of Augmentics in in the middle of their exams. And I've been delighted to um, be proven wrong and and see that patients are generally speaking very accepting. So if you're a patient and you go to see an Augmedics doctor, um, you will be greeted typically by the front desk or the MA at one point in time, hey, your doctor uses Augmedics. Here's a laminated FAQ explaining how it works and the benefits for everyone, it's in plain English. Any questions or concerns, Augmedics turns off. So just let us know. And our off rate is less than 2% nationally. In other words, 98 plus, plus percent of the time Patients are accepting the, of the use of augmentics in their doctor visits. So we see this acceptance rate as being really good, better than I actually thought it would be. I mean, I think for good reason. Patients don't particularly like the status quo either, <laughs> having, having a difficult time getting a hold of their doctor and having really degraded visits in the middle. And so this really is an improvement for them over the status quo. I should also add that if there's a moment of anxiety or nudity or something, um, we have workflows to go into like an incognito mode. So that gives the patient privacy for that moment and the devices will change color and state informing the patient that that has occurred. So we've really thought through how to make this a really positive experience for patients. Um, And then of course, technically, you have to understand that everything is encrypted end-to-end. We provisioned the special purpose hardware. It runs our app and nothing but our app. On the scribe cockpit side, it's like Fort Knox. Typically, the scribes are working in environments where there's nothing in their pocket, no pen, paper. There's sort of audio, video, monitoring, and it's, it's as you would expect it to be. It's extremely secure.
0: Got it. Okay. So this massive pandemic <laughs> came down on us probably March-ish, which is, of course, horrible for a lot of us, but in many ways, it's probably somewhat good for Augmedic's business in terms of being even more critical. And, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how telemedicine has affected your business model and maybe your technology as well.
2: Yeah, so despite the tragedy of COVID-19, in some ways it's highlighted our benefits. Um, put it another way, you know, we've been adding health system customers and we've been adding doctors through the summer of 2020. We have substantially more clients today than we did pre-pandemic, so we're very fortunate in that respect. And, and it sort of makes sense, right? Think about what we do. We improve doctor productivity. We alleviate burnout. We do so in a remote, and a sterile way. We're made for this world that we live in, I guess you could say. And as I was mentioning earlier, doctors used to have in-person scribes sometimes. And the realities of the pandemic have forced those doctors oftentimes to let go of those scribes, which creates a demand for us, um, which we are happy to to seize. Um, Another thing that we've done is turned on a third modality to access our services. So modality one, you know, use this on your phone. Modality two, use this on Google Glass. Modality three, use this on your telemedicine telemedicine visits. So doctor and a patient are on a, on a Zoom call, for example. We are then ambiently documenting on that Zoom visit, and no devices are necessary in many cases, and we're just right on the stream performing the work and the interactivity over Zoom when we have a deep strategic inter- integration with Zoom.
0: And so will the patient be able to see Augmedics in the session and sort of be aware that Augmedics is live?
2: Yeah, the, the sort of informed and inf- information and consent to use Augmedics is what you know needs to happen over telemedicine as it would over in person visits. And typically in the Zoom visit, um, Augmedics is shown as a as a service running and as a party to the stream, and the patient can see that that's the case.
0: I'd love to take a step back and just talk about sort of the sales process here. So you have this product that could be used in a hospital, in a doctor's office, at a private practice. How did you think as a founder, what slice of the market you were going to go after first? Did you, did you have that in mind or were you just going to kind of see where it stuck? <laughs>
2: well, there's what you want and there's what you actually can get.
0: <laughs> so, you know, if
2: you listen to all the VCs out there, they'll tell you, you know, unit economics and, you know, it's much more efficient to sell to a large health system to Kaiser than it is to individual doctors on, on University Avenue. But the reality is Kaiser doesn't really want to talk to you on day one. And most digital health startups really need to prove their mettle with independent doctors and showing proof points and compliance and gain traction in that way. And of course, that's what we did in in the first um, year, more than a year of our existence.
0: And what was that like? How did they react?
2: Well, for one, like independent doctors appreciate the value propositions of automatics just as much as Dignity or Sutter would and do. But it's just much easier to engage uh, Maverick, make your own decision, your own business person, independent doctors, get them up and running. Um, You can get an independent doctor up and running in a matter of weeks, whereas the sales cycle for health system is typically a matter of quarters. And it's just sort of uh, a way that we got started. And I think a way that many digital health startups need to get started. I I wish it wasn't so, but it is just the way it is. Now today, I would say 90% of our users, even more than that, are from enterprise clients, the likes of Dignity or Sutter or CHI or Northern Light, you know, big folks like that. But we had to grow into those shoes.
0: Got it. And I guess that sales process must feel very different because you're selling a product that maybe Sutter will pay for, but that doctors are actually using. So in that process, do you have to Mm -hmm. pitch to sort of the, the business folks up high before even talking to the doctors there? Or what does that look like?
2: Isn't it funny how in healthcare, there's like always so many people you're selling to and the stakeholders or are... <laughs> the stakeholder map is so complicated. Yes, I guess it's, it is somewhat complex for us too when selling to enterprise. So typically speaking, we contract with the large enterprise and, our, and a typical champion would be the CMIO, chief medical information officer.
0: Huh. What do they do? They, t-
2: they tend to be a physician themselves. And they tend to bridge physicians and their needs with technology and IT. And most health systems have a CMIO or CMIOs. We also have other champions that can bring us into health systems. I've seen heads of innovation, chief medical officer, people in operations be good inroads and champions for us to sell into enterprise. But typically you need a champion. They really usher you through the process and help you get an enterprise master contract set up. And then, you know, we'll typically do an initial deployment. 10, 20 doctors or something like that, show the health system what good looks like, agree on metrics, strategic initiatives, and then we'll begin that rhythm of of growing and permeation throughout a health system, which can take take a long time. It is interesting because most of the time the health system is paying the bill, paying for augmentics. But on the other hand, the doctors, generally speaking, want augmentics and are the users of augmentics and get many benefits from it. So, Oftentimes, the health systems will make a strategic ask of those doctors that they deploy augmedics on. So for example, maybe um, you will see X more patients per day or any number of things.
0: So there's like a trade-off happening.
2: There's often a trade-off, not always. Um, And in some cases also, health systems will pass on some financial responsibility of paying for the monthly service fee of augmedics to those end-doctor users, and it might vary that responsibility based on the doctor's productivity levels, right? So there's a bewildering number of w- ways that health systems will pay for augmentics and then incent doctors to strategically use Augmedics and change their behavior or not, or pay to- pay some amount or not. So we at Augmedics, one of our responsibilities, as we see it, is also to help health systems think through all of this mess and all these options and tell them, you know, what's worked at Dignity, what's worked at Sutter, here's the data we can all work together to deploy this in your various regions among your doctors.
0: That's fascinating. I would never think of a doctor needing to be a part of that conversation. Like, I know you're paying X, Y, and Z for this product for me to do my job, but I promise you it'll be worth it. And here's here are the metrics I'm gonna hit in order to show that to you. That's wild.
2: It is wild. I mean, in, in some ways it's simpler for the, those independent doctors that are not part of the enterprise. In that respect, you are your own business person. You want the service, you're paying for it outright, end of story, right? Right. But in a health system, there's this multi-level kind of understanding that needs to be had. And so some health systems view Augmedics more as a burnout relief uh, solution. And so they ask very little of their doctors. And if anything, they're just trying to keep those doctors stable and happy doctors are, are, are good doctors and practice good medicine. And, you know, it's kind of a war for doctors out there in the, in the world of the doctor shortage we have today. And some health systems have a more financial point of view, and they're really trying to incent doctors to practice at the top of their license and also at a high level of productivity. They really want to be discerning about who they give automatics to and under what circumstances and how doctors get to keep it.
1: Now, I'd love to dive into the outcomes and, you know, the improvements that you're showing in a lot of these outcomes with Agmetix. I guess at the very basic level, it's clear to all doctors, I'm spending a lot of time on my computer writing up these notes, I can save up time. On the hospital end, one of the things that I've heard is as a digital health company, you don't just want to show the hospital you can make them more efficient. It's you want to show them that you can increase revenue. And so I'm curious to hear from you. How were you able to demonstrate and at what point in in the eight-year journey were you able to actually demonstrate improvement in time for doctors, improvement in revenue for hospitals?
2: I mean, early on, when we're live on a, on a health system, I think the expectation is within a matter of months. We need to be doing time in motion studies showing that we are doing what we promise to do, which is saving doctors two hours a day or more. And we need to be connecting that with additional results. Those results could be more patients are being seen or doctors are modifying their schedules in ways that are strategic and produce more revenue. And so we, we take it as a responsibility to make sure those metrics are agreed to. We understand them before we go live, and then we constantly monitor and track them as we do go live. A lot of health systems don't really actually have the infrastructure to do this measurement bit. And a lot of startups kind of take for granted that they do. And I think it's really important that startups don't take that for granted and really get into the ROI and the metrics upfront and early and as you proceed. So, yeah, uh, health systems really buy us for the following metrics and value propositions. One is the nexus of time savings and productivity, more patients per day, something like that. That's the main reason. The second reason health systems bias is the alleviation of doctor burnout, which sounds all well and nice, and it is, but actually it's very expensive when a doctor churns or burns out. When a doctor leaves a health system and a health system has to find a new one, relocate and there's the training decline, the productivity resumption, it could cost half a million to a million dollars. The health system would have to go through that.
1: And are you able to measure that at all, qualitatively or quantitatively, that you're able to reduce burnout?
2: The, f- the first one is easily measured, and we do it all the time. The second one, we have to extrapolate to. So we have all kinds of quality of life and burnout measures that we point to, and we make arguments and models about how that connects to reduced churn. And we, we do do that. But as you can see, a squishier metric than the first one, right?
0: I'm curious how long it takes to deploy with one EHR. Is that, are you looking at like a six month process? Or are you looking at a couple weeks? A
2: lot of um, healthcare startups kind of in this like EHR integration purgatory. So they got this health system all excited to be up and running and then great. So you're now in the Cerner queue or the Epic queue to be integrated and we'll talk to you in 18 months. Once it's like the 90 projects in front of you get processed. Um, and typically, typically by the time that happens, there's a new CIO and it's like, what what just happened, right? One of the interesting things about automatics is we actually require minimal EHR integration to be up and running on day one. So to be up and running in doctor group X, all you really need to do is provision us EHR login credentials, um, credentials specifically to a scribe profile. Now, as we get to higher levels of scale with the health system, higher numbers of doctors, there's a lot of benefits to um, deeper EHR integration involving FHIR, or HL7, or other APIs. Um, and that takes time. And we can work that out on its own timeline, I guess. So we kind of have set up our system in a way that we can be up and running in no time with no EHR integration, but we build a bridge to EHR integration when, when the health system customer and automatics are ready and have the scale to do so.
1: I'd love to understand the regulation steps here, building AI requires FDA clearance because it's making medical decisions, unless it's being used to support some other part of the non-clinical decision-making process. So in the world of Agmedics and the problem that you're trying to solve, what place does regulation hold?
2: Fortunately for us, our current workflow is such that we do not need to seek FDA regulation or the European equivalent, not that we're active in Europe. That is because we do not make medical decisions. Um, We are merely a conduit. We are the pencils of the doctor in the the note-taking process. And importantly, the doctor has to click confirm when the pending note is being reviewed. And in doing so, um, the doctor takes legal responsibility for the note in its totality. And, And we're not the first person to invent this concept or way of looking at it. Doctors that were using in-person scribes, informally or formally, had been thinking of, of it this way for years in advance of our, of our existence. Now, there are other things we have to think about. Um, a lot of health systems have really rightly complex and, and onerous information security and compliance hoops that we have to jump through in order to be successful with them. So we have plenty of things to worry about in the compliance point of view. And we also have HIPAA and all of that, but we're not subject to the FDA oversight right now.
0: I'm kind of curious what the end goal for a company like Augmedix is. And I appreciate that you might not know that right now, but there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, maybe you get acquired by an EHR, right? I mean, this seems like the kind of technology that any of these companies should be able to just have themselves. And is an acquisition something that you're looking towards? Is it an IPO? What's sort of the the end game here?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're building the company sort of strategically to be um, a standalone iconic independent company and a, really a layer on top of healthcare in America that spans specialty, that spans health systems, that spans various EHRs. And we're well on our way to doing that. We have a, a wildly ambitious vision for Augmedics. You know, what we do today, saving doctors a third of the day, alleviating burnout, it's, it's a massive opportunity in its own right Um, But we actually have designed to really think about automatics as, over the long run, a platform business, as well as an artificial intelligence and technology business. Once you're on the eyes and ears of doctors at scale and so many different specialties, and you're sort of riding on these EHR pipes, think of us as being able to do so much more than just documentation, though that's still huge. But think of us as being able to provide dazzling types of decision support and nudges and care gaps and additional services on top with sort of the chapter one of our business, justifying our position there. And then also just think about the data running through our pipes, how incredibly valuable it is, right? You know, EHR companies think they have valuable data and they do. We of course process that data and have access to that data as well, but we also have access to the conversational graph um, on what's literally said between doctors and patients, time stamped and married to EHR data. So we really see the chapter two of our business, Really, we, we will be unleashing sort of platform extensions and capabilities going above and beyond ambient documentation, as well as harnessing that really one-of-a-kind data set to um, accelerate our automation, which we've talked about a little bit today, as well as to power new features above and beyond ambient documentation.
0: Can you maybe give us a couple of teasers as to what that conversation graph could produce?
2: Yeah, I mean, just think about it. Like, Augmentics, at, at scale, we could tell you the three words uttered before the misdiagnosis of COVID in women over 40 in Colorado on Tuesdays, right? Um, And we could see variances in practice patterns and the way drugs are discussed and the way just decisions are made. And ordinarily speaking, all you would see is what gets submitted in the EMR, specifically for billing purposes, right? But when you really marry um, the conversational graph of the EHR, we think it's a really powerful data set um, that can be used to nudge doctors and standardized doctors in really care-improving ways.
1: Earlier, you spoke about uh, taking the Uber approach uh, where you start with uh, this integration and then start to automate pieces that can be automated one at a time. I'm curious, what is the Uber driverless car equivalent uh, for Augmetics and what timeline uh, do you think about in terms of getting there?
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's kind of funny. I live in San Francisco. I'm I'm the biggest geek ever, but I'm a little bit restrained when it comes to talking about when will software be able to do the vast majority of the work. In the nineties, there was this process of medical transcription and it was mostly powered by transcriptionists and it took 15 plus years for the majority of those single party dictation transcription workflows to now be um, mostly software processed. I guess I would have to tell you, I think it will be a similar timeline in the multi-party ambient scribing world, which is very different, even though it seems very similar. So th- in other words, it won't happen overnight. Next year, the pure AI solutions and workflows will not be working, and they will still resemble dictation transcription, unfortunately. Um, the cool thing about our business model is that we've set things up at Automatic so that we're somewhat indifferent. Our, our unit economics are great today. Um, with high ratios of humans in the loop. And they have only nowhere to go, but better, depending upon how quickly the journey to automation happens. And we're not like overly dependent on some sort of miracle singularity moment that will happen in some undetermined amount of time. I think that's very rational and conservative for us to have built a business that works in that way. And I don't see other startups being conservative. And I think that's high risk of them. And not only that, I think that we're positioned to basically be the leader in this because we are collecting so much data. We have so much scale and so, so much workflow mastery. We think we're going to be the pioneers of the ones ushering in the layers of automation within our um, workflows.
0: I'd love to end our conversation by asking you what surprised you most about starting a company in healthcare, either for better or for worse.
2: Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, everyone always says healthcare is hard and, you know, you have to give a decade of your life to get a healthcare startup from ideation to really independent success. And um, that's true in spades. So, you know, this is not for the faint of heart to found an enterprise-focused health system and and make it come to life. And just the level of capital required, just sort of enterprise sales mastery and and product perfection and the ups and downs of pleasing um, a doctor health system customer base, it's really extreme. So, it's, it's just, again, not for the fan of heart, but I think there's great rewards for those few of us that have the stamina and <laughs> the work with all to make it through. And I hope to be one of those folks.
0: Ian, thank you <laughs> so much for coming on and talking to us. We really appreciate it.
2: This has been a great conversation.
1: And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Ian Shaquille for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and HRL. And until next time,
0: stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. Many thanks to C. Si U. Shi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.